Welcome back to the Pilgrim Faith Podcast, where human wonder fuels the quest for Christian wisdom. Today, Dale and I are just delighted to be joined by a couple of uh, faithful OGs of the da- of the Pilgrim Faith Podcast, uh, Nathaniel Grace Utanto and Corey Brock. Uh, formerly, if you can see his little uh, his little Zoom screen there, formerly of a PCA church, but now a pastor of uh, in the Free Church of Scotland. Uh, uh, so now living in Edinburgh instead of Mississippi. Uh, but we're here to talk about a book that both of our, our dear friends here have co-authored, uh, Neo-Calvinism, A Theological Introduction, a book that has received a lot of press, an enormous amount of endorsements. People are very excited about this book, uh, partially because, uh, typically speaking, uh, 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 Neo-Calvinism is thought to be mostly associated with sort of sort of cultural movements people when they when when you invoke the the phrase neo-calvinism what we meet immediately begin thinking about is uh, a, a sort of worldview movements we begin to think about culture movements we begin to think about institutions and we begin to think about this kind of kind of model of christ and culture that is usually goes by the title transformationalism of which kuiper is supposedly sort of the uh the, the iconic advocate one might say uh, but our, our, our brothers here have written what they are, are calling a theological introduction to neo-Calvinism, arguing in the book that one one can't really understand the project that that Bovink and Kuiper are a part of and how to apply it in a sense without really capturing the interior theological vision that informs uh, all the ways in which they apply that to the particular questions. Uh, uh, of modernity. And so really we want them to, to come on today and just talk a bit about this book and why they thought it was useful. And so I'm just going to kind of turn it over to you guys really and just begin by asking, uh, again, you know, we have these associations with transformationalism and cultural questions, but you point out in the introduction that you need to remember that Bavink and Kuiper are theologians first. That's their actual vocation. Yeah. Uh, and uh, what what was it? I guess you could say that sort of motivated you all in the in the first place to sort of recapture that more interior theological dimension of of neo Calvinism. Yeah, this is a great question, Joe. And maybe I could uh, take the first stab, and Corey could follow through after this. But I think. As I reflect more on this sort of question, uh, when Corey and I were doing our PhDs together at the University of Edinburgh um, on Bavink, we were realizing just how much of the theological resources within neo-Calvinism were were really quite neglected, not just by other advocates who claim to be neo-Calvinists, but also by critics of neo-Calvinism as such, if that makes sense. So both advocates of neo-Calvinists and critics of neo-Calvinism um, associate the title anyway with uh, philosophy, reformational movements, a la Doiviard, um, cultural activism, a la even you know the right wing material from Reconstructionism of Rush Dooney, to even more left wing folks who want to say that hey Christianity has to be allied in a particular way to modernity. We got to reinterpret the old ref- reform thinking. We got to purge ourselves of the older scholasticism. And therefore, be more more distinctly modern Christians, if that makes sense. So, when we actually take a look at the original sources and the translation of Bavink, I think is really really pivotal for this. Mm-hmm. Um, to e- even revisit Kuiper as well is, is that Bavink and Kuiper were profoundly theological and they were confessional. In fact, they argued that they uh, were holding on to the older orthodoxy, 
but in such a way where that old orthodoxy becomes a resource for the renewal of Protestantism in the late modern modern age, if that makes sense. So when you take a look at their work, it, you know, philosophy and and politics, journalism, pedagogy, psychology definitely were in their purview, but they always addressed these topics from a theological foundation. And Bobbing's Reform Dogmatics is really pivotal, but also even Kuiper, and now we're revisiting, I think, the more theological works of Kuiper. Uh, Common Grace was not translated until recently, you know, the two-volume uh, Common Grace, uh, the huge ones that Luxembourg Press is working on and, and has, has published. And, you know, his Encyclopedia of Sacred Theology only only a portion of it is is published in English, and and people forget that that's actually the magnum opus. It's it's a work in theology, a work in scripture, and so all of these works were really quite neglected. And so we wanted to mine these texts that are newly translated, some partially translated, to really show forth that neo Calvinists who aren't doc- dogmatic in terms of their mode first, in terms of their principial stance, so to speak, um, isn't actually being cognizant of the original first generation neo-Calvinist material, if that makes sense. Corey? Yeah, I'll add, I mean, one of the associations that you will see regularly or in several books is that um, when it when the author wants to talk about neo-Calvinism, the first name that gets mentioned is N.T. Wright. And that that's happened in um, several major reformed publications over the last decade. And uh, it, it's it's a bit confusing to us, but um, it happens very commonly. One of the reasons for that is because Wright emphasizes uh, the renewal of a vision of uh, salvation as new creation, as opposed to you know the heavenly life. Wright talks about it a lot, uh, and it, it's also found in neo Calvinism. But uh, Gray mentioned, you know, you you've got streams. Uh, the North American versions of all sorts. You've got the N.T. Wright, Richard Middleton sort of uh, interpretive framework for, for many folks. You've got the more popular level James Sire, Nancy Piercy associations uh, for neo-Calvinism that are entirely uh, worldviewism-based ideas. And so, yeah, just to echo what Grace said, I mean, we wanted to go back to the sources. Uh, historic neo-Calvinism is... Um, not really any of these things. It's these are downstream versions uh, that took one emphasis, perhaps, of the theological movements and Dutch neo-Calvinism of the late 19th and early 20th centuries, and ran with it and took it to its its extreme form. Um, and so we just wanted to do a recovery project. And as George Harink in the introduction, or the Ford, I should say, says uh, that neo-Calvinism has been an international movement for a century, but it's not really developed as dogmatics. Mm-hmm. And we're trying to uh, recover that and renew that work that it is its dogmatic distinctives um, that were most important and that led the way to all the other things that it's m- more commonly known for. Um, you know, you guys know this very well. Uh, everybody loves Bobbing's dogmatics. And uh, it was Bobbing's dogmatics that was the chief work of neo-Calvinism. Mm. And so there's a real tension now. Um, I've said this, to Gray and I have talked about this in the past, but um, you've got the tension that uh, for all the negativity that neo-Calvinism has received over the last while, uh, especially in North America, um, it's hard to know what to do with it now when when everyone wants to use Bobbing's dogmatics as their own theology, uh, yes. which was the chief theology of neo-Calvinism. 
Um, and so there's a little bit of a, of a, of a tension there. Um, both the, the critical approaches to, to the idea of neo-Calvinism, uh, trying to know what to do with Bob Inc. Um, and, and finding, realizing that they like him, <laughs> that they, yeah. uh, really appreciate him. And so, uh, I think our book is trying to help, uh, people understand that actually the things that they're critiquing might not have ever been there in the first place. Right. And the confusion is multiplied when people take a look at Boving and find out that they like him and they've been critical of neo-Calvinism in the past. And then they decide, well, Demis Boving wasn't a neo-Calvinist, which right. just right. <laughs> historically and theologically just doesn't make sense given where he was in the movement. Yeah. Well, to, to that last comment that you made, um, Corey, about everyone sort of yeah, people read Bob Inc., they like him, and then they want to sort of claim him for their own little tradition. And, you know, we live in an online world. We're a digital people. And the conversation, but I, I suppose this is like a North American phenomenon, as we were talking about, Gray, earlier before we started recording. Uh, but the wars that happen between camps, theological camps online, uh, just can't be ignored because it gets into the pews and pastors have to answer questions from you know, zealous little people that watch 10 hours of a YouTube video and then have all the answers in the world. Uh, but one of the things with Bob Inc. and scholasticism um, that you guys mentioned in the introduction, I'll just go ahead and read this paragraph and then I'll throw out a question you guys can wrestle with. Uh, but you say the use of Kuiper and Bob Inc. within the contemporary dichotomy between Thomism and Vantillianism, for example, exemplifies this in a rather stark manner. The desire to distance or append Kuiper or Bovink to these movements often produces a rather lopsided reading of the primary sources, such that particular passages are emphasized while others are ignored, re ignored reducing these first-generation neo-Calvinists to either preludes or formidable critics of Thomism or Vantillianism. In our judgment, this debate has gradually become counterproductive. For these reasons, we have set aside this debate entirely in this present volume. Okay, so you don't, you're not going to deal with that question in the volume. Fair enough. Uh, but this is a podcast, my brothers. Uh, so <laughs> so t tell us what you think. Um, and we'll keep in mind that this is your personal opinion. But I, I see this. I see the Thomist claim Bovink for their own, that he's in this sort of scholastic tradition. And I see the presuppositionalists say, no, Bovink is the father of presuppositionalists presuppositionalism that gave rise to Van Til's thought. And uh, yeah, with the lopsidedness, where do you think if Bovink were here today, what he would say to these people that are claiming him? Do you want to start, Corey? Or do you want me to start? Your smile says <laughs> you want me to start. Okay. Um, all right. You so to, you went to Westminster, Gray, so you get to take this. <laughs> yeah, you know, it is it is an interesting uh, thought. I think, you know, um, and uh, maybe we'll, we'll, we'll answer it this way. You know, take the preface to the first edition of the Reform Dogmatics, which has been cited over and over again by so many people, not only in the Twitter sphere, but also in the journals, journal articles that were written on Boving. You know, um, circa 2004 to 2012, especially there's a flurry of articles on Boving because they're really excited that Boving's dogmatics is finally translated. And, you know, we could have added not just Van Til and Thomism, but also Planiga. You know, um, Boving is off and Kuiper are often cited in a couple of footnotes and a lot of philosophy texts as a prelude to Planiga. Hmm. Um, so they're only interesting insofar as they set up this other thing, if that makes sense. 
And the preface to the first edition of Bobbing's Reform Dogmatics has has some very interesting comments from Bobbing there. You know, he famously said there um, that Thomas, along with Augustine, Irenaeus, and other church fathers and medieval doctors, are are not only fathers for the Roman Catholic Church, but we as Protestants are also indebted toward them, right? They're also fathers to us. And so very positive affirmation of Aquinas. Thomas take a look at that and they love that and run with it, you know. Right. But then a paragraph later, he says, but to look for, to the past and to cherish the past is not reformed. Mm. Um, we need to labor for the future and there's new things that we got to say. And then you couple that with his preface to the wonderful works of God, which wasn't translated in the older uh, Our Reasonable Faith edition. Um, I translated it for the Westminster Seminary Press edition um, that came out in 2019. He says very frankly there that Abrakel's uh, reasonable faith uh, is no longer fruitful for us. We need to say something new, right? Which is very controversial to those mm-hmm. who also want to retrieve the older uh, reformed uh, post-Reformation Orthodox uh, sort of traditions. And so, um, well, which is it? Um, is is Does he really like Aquinas and the older scholastics or is he really kind of critical of them? And it's a little bit of both. And to, to say, therefore, that he is just a, a prelude to one means you got to ignore some other things he says, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So you, you can take that sentence and run with it and then ignore what he says about, well, to just cherish the past, not reformed. We can't just do that. we got to also labor for the future and learn from mod- modernity and things like that. Um, um, means to take holistically everything that Bobbing has said. On the other side, I think with the Van Til side, not just Bobbing, especially Kuiper here as well, you know, you got the lectures on Calvinism, uh, Calvinism as a life system, uh, Calvinism as a worldview. Bavink argues in the beginning of his apologetic section that, you know, um, the faith is not the conclusion of an argument, but it's a presupposition for the argument, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, wonderful material there for Van Tillens to be like, oh, okay, yeah, I like worldview, I like presuppositions. But then he also says all these, you know, Thomas is a father. We, didn't, we can't just get rid of that. He was critical of Aquinas in, in a number of ways, preferred Bonaventure in a number of ways, but he didn't have this wholesale approach of, you know, when I think about the Van Til stuff, well, well, Calvinism is a whole self-conscious and, and, and closed system. Roman Catholicism is another enclosed system. Now there's an antithesis between the two of them, just as there's an antithesis between Calvinism and secularism, if that makes sense. I think with Bavink, he sees... Christianity as a worldview, yes, but that Christian Christian worldview for Boving includes the continuities in some aspects between Protestantism and yeah. Roman Catholicism. He didn't see Calvinism as a worldview as over against Romanism, Arminianism, and Modernism as all distinct worldviews together, if that makes sense. But rather, he saw the whole historiography of the Christian faith as together, including some Roman Catholic elements where we have continuities with them. Mm-hmm. For instance, doctrine of God, as we we all are, are aware about, especially today. So he didn't see there to be a, a distinct Calvinistic doctrine of God as opposed to a Roman Catholic doctrine of God. Um, maybe there are some little disagreements here and there, but overall as a whole, the Reformation um, took up a lot of what the, the Roman Catholics authors said, especially in the, the pre-Reformation era, not post-Reformation mm-hmm. Catholics, but the pre-Reformation era, Bonaventure, Thomas, Aquinas, especially, and Augustine, of mm-hmm. course. So um, I think that's, so, so 
for for some of the Van Tillens to take a look at Bobbing, that's why they're going to be critical of some aspects, and you're just going to take some strands. Another thing to say about Kuiper, maybe, when Kuiper argued that Calvinism is a whole life system and Christ is Lord over every area of life, he oftentimes said this in 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 the context of an affirmation of democracy, pluralism, and mm. the social conditions of modernity. And I said this in a different podcast before, and, and basically... When Kuiper was saying that, he was he was arguing, um, mm. if Christ is Lord, then Christians are not. And so if that's the case, then we cannot have a theocratic state here because that would be placing Christians as Lord. If Christ is Lord, he and his common grace um, is patient with unbelievers. And so believers have to coexist with unbelievers. And as a Christian state, therefore, we're not to impose um a a christian hegemony if that makes sense so um and i think you know especially when i'm thinking about the the rushdunian use of Antil, which uses that kyber quote all the time and they think about a reconstructionist movement that's distinctly not what kyber had envisioned if that makes sense mm. so lots of things we can say but but one more thing one more thing this is probably the most important thing to say um this is a very North American conversation. Um, very distinctly, when we're talking about the the Dutch conversations and Bavink and Kuiper, the conversation there was had almost nothing to do with Aquinas and Van Til, um, but yeah. it had to do more so with the legacy of Burkauer, legacy of Klaus Schilder. You know uh, how much of their thought warrants us to revise older Christian faiths and older Protestant uh, confessions. How much of what they say means that we got to actually stand on these Protestant confessions? What's the relationship between Christianity and science? Those are the sorts of conversations they were having, and we do well to just zoom out of our own American context and take a look at, hey, how were Kuiper and Bobbing actually received in the Dutch milieu and beyond, not just the American blogosphere. Yes. Mm -hmm. That's really insight. That's really, really interesting. This is one of those reasons that uh, it, in my house, I have a, a special bookshelf with all my books. I don't have that many books, but I have a special bookshelf of my sort of OG. Um, pay, if, if a Protestant can have patron saints, then uh, if I were able to have them, who would they be? Well, it's Bavink and Lewis. And one of the things, oddly, you know, nobody ever puts Bavink and Lewis really together as thinkers, uh, but, you know, Lewis doesn't read Bavink. But one of the things that's very interesting, nevertheless, that, that, that relates them to me always in my mind uh, is precisely what you said about this relationship to tradition, that even though there is this deep uh, reception of this rich Christian tradition, there is nevertheless this recognition that we live in this kind of odd, peculiar modern space and that what the project is, in a sense, is to, to, to kind of take the you guys have talked about worldview as a map instead of a set of lenses, is to take kind of the map that we've received, if one could speak of the tradition that way, to, to take this kind of collective cartography uh, uh, and then stare at our world and say, how does it help inform and help us navigate that world? And in a sense, what's recognized in both Bob Inc. and a person like Lewis is the map is, in fact, only as good as its ability to help you navigate reality itself. Uh, and in fact, what that does, instead of deconfirming the map for them as it confirms the map, is that here we are in this modern circumstance 
and yet the map is still useful in some way. Uh, it can kind of adapt. It has unique things to say to unique circumstances. And I'm thinking of this even in kind of contemporary Catholic discourse. There was a guy, um, I'm seeing all these 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 authors like Zach Hoover and J Jordan Daniel Wood on Maximus, um, and then Mark Spencer's recent work on the human person. Uh, and what all of them are kind of pointing out is uh, the 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 contribution kind of of the Christian hive mind to the development of unique emphases that develop and really only come to their own in some sense in the modern world. So that Mark Spencer, who's really trying to consolidate the whole Catholic tradition on the question of man's nature, will nevertheless say in that book, uh, maybe there's something about human nature that we understand uniquely right now. Uh, because of historical conditions that have sort of forced us to stare at man uh, in a particular and kind of rigorous way. Uh, and it seems to me that there's something, I don't know, consonant with Bob Inc. in there that we're, again, we're receiving the tradition, but but uh, but we're also, we're inflecting it and we're applying it in unique ways, which does bring up the question, I suppose, just while we're on this, while we're on this topic, how do you relate, nevertheless, the reception of kind of that old grammar, if we could put it that way, like scholasticism is a kind of, if we could speak of scholasticism as an inherited set of terms or discourse or ways of carving up the world. Uh, Bovink's, some of the language you find in Bovink and Kuiper that is added to that kind of grows out of it, but it's its own, it, it kind of comes from its own world, its own philosophical world. How, how do you, how do you think they relate these two things? Is it, is one sort of organically, if we can use that motif, growing out of the other, or are these, how radically new is the neo, <laughs> you might say in neo-Calvinism, if one could put it that way? Yeah, Joe, thanks. Um, I mean, another, just to take it one step back, another connection between Bob Inc. and Lewis is that uh, in Bob Inc.'s latter, latter part of his career, he really turned towards the project of mere Christianity. I mean, after he had written the Reform Dogmatics, and he stood by that, but um, a lot of his his uh, late works are really focused on uniting uh, Christian people around a, a sort of mere Christianity all of that, and I think this leads to the question you're asking, but also takes us back to what we were just talking about, is what we've called the orthodox yet modern character of neo-Calvinism. So that's kind of a uh, a title that we've given to the quality and character of the of the historic neo-Calvinist, uh, Kuiper and Bavink in particular. And in it, there's an emphasis that we want to conserve without being um, too wedded to conservatism. Right. And we want to progress without being progressivists in theological terms. And uh, really, the, the Thomas Van Til thing picks right up on on Joe's question that he's, he's just given us. Because, um, well, for, for Bob Inc., it, it, it's all about looking for truth wherever it can be found. And uh, if you were to ask, is Bob Inc. a Thomist, or is he the prelude to Van Tilianism, I think... Bavink would uh, dismiss the question uh, precisely because of the endings. You know, he doesn't want ist or ism to be added, um, though he loves Thomas. And yes, the best of Van Til, and there is uh, very helpful moments in Van Til, does derive from Bavink. But he, he can't be overly associated um, as a disciple of Thomas or a prelude to Van Til in a, any exclusive way, precisely because of his emphasis on I mean, this is rather cliche, but he truly is reformed and Catholic. 
And that's the best way I think to, to think about him. Um, and, and that lends itself, I think to, to your question, Joe. Um, well, I mean, Bobbing's very explicit, isn't he? That, uh, that Christianity doesn't need to be wed to any particular philosophy and any particular grammar, that grammars can be borrowed uh, from any age, from any culture and context, mm-hmm. uh, and that Christianity might arise and develop in a, in a context that doesn't have access to Plato and Aristotle, but did hear the gospel and, 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 and say the same things in very different philosophical grammars, right? Depending on the, the background and the cultures um, and the times. And so I think, uh, the neo-Calvinist tradition tries to be um, aware of that, and it's part of that same idea of conservation, with but not conservatism, progress without progressivism, all for the sake of being able to speak the truth to today, to the contemporary. And, uh, you know, back to Gray's comment about Abrakul, you know, Bobbing says it's uh, indeed controversial. I think I like Abrakul better than maybe Bobbing did. But... Um, but he says he's not really very useful anymore. And he's particularly talking there about for young people. He says he's not really a book that is a theology that has any use for, for uh, young minds in modernity. Uh, and so that's why that's, you know, one of the reasons he wrote um, his shorter systematic theology. Uh, and and th- that's just an example that, that he's um, he's trying to address the people in front of him. So this is ministry. Uh, I mean, this is, mm. uh, this is trying to be persuasive. This is uh, trying to say we can speak truthfully and persuasively simultaneously and adopt old grammars into new forms. Um, but of course, uh, you know, one of the things we say in the book is that we don't have a chapter on the doctrine of God because there's there's not much to say. Uh, right. uh, it, it's it's If the book, our book is about unique theological contributions that the neo-Calvinist fathers offer us, um, the doctrine of God isn't really one of them. Uh, they they are largely, you know, to, to contradict myself, Thomist when it comes to that subject, for for lack of a, a better term, and um, uh, and so it's a it's a yes and no, it's a both and, uh, and of course you're probably thinking there. Well, you use the term the organic, right? The organic is the most popular term, uh, modern term, I guess that they appropriate into their grammar to speak about theology. But we, I think we, it's important to remember that the organic is a classical concept, right? And, and mm-hmm. a concept that merely describes a, an obvious truth about nature um, and one that's very biblical. And so, uh, you know, we try to say in the in the book several times that the organic metaphor is derivative, uh, not first from Schelling, but first from uh, Jesus saying that, uh, that he's, he's the vine, that we're the we're the branches and he's yes. the vine. Yes, God uh, was the original organicist. Uh, yeah, yeah. Right. Um, uh, that that a uh, that the the primary ways of viewing uh, new creation is through the image of the garden, right? And and um, and so these concepts go f- much further back than Schelling, and uh, and of course Plato speaks of the organic as well. I mean, it's a, it's a very classical concept of the union of of unity and diversities um, in in teeming with with life. And so, yeah, I mean, again, it's a, that's a really big question. And I mean, one of the ways you have to evaluate this question is on sort of on a case by case basis and, and looking at um, yeah. 
the different uh, theological loci and, and how in certain areas they did more or less of appropriating scholastic grammar versus appropriating uh, romanticism, uh, which was probably their most significant philosophical interlocutor. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. The organic motif is so um, intuitive for me. So I run a classical K through 12 program here in Brevard County, Florida. Uh, and one of the things Joe mentioned, Lewis and Bavink, um, and this idea of contextual contextualizing the tradition for modernity. Um, and if you're going to train young minds how to move around in the world that Providence has found them, uh, then you have to contextualize the tradition for them. It almost seems like that is the natural uh, organic way that pedagogy is 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 done um one of the things that strikes me as odd is <clears throat> the scholastic tradition was doing precisely that for their moment uh they're pulling on the tradition has been handed to them up to that point and developing out thoughts that were revolutionizing the way that people understood reality and it would be sort of hubristic if we thought that it it where it would be ignorant if we thought that it just ended there and we have nothing to contribute. Lewis talks about um, tradition or natural law, um, uh, the Tao as being able to change, but from the inside, right? You can't tinker with the Tao from the outside, but you can certainly change it from the inside. And Jesus is a good example of this with how people understood the role of women and marriage and, you know, uh, the, the, the meek and the humble, and he's telling this to a Greco-Roman world that's based on an honor system. And that would have been like, what is this guy talking about? He's sitting on a mountain talking about peaceful, meek, uh, humble people inheriting the world. That's weird, right? Um, so it just seems intuitive to me that what Bovink's project was about was something that we ought to, even if we don't intellectually assent to all the particulars, practically in raising our children and discipling the people in our churches and affecting our communities, which I guess is why Boving's cultural stuff is always emphasized in Kuiper's, we ought to practically f function this way. Um, so there's a question there. Uh, yeah. You, you mentioned the, the garden uh, and, you know, Boving's vision of this organicism uh, emerging out of uh, the fact that grace sort of restores nature we get back to the edenic state uh through the god god's common grace being worked out in um you know the family and the city and the church and i this is this might be a silly question it's a technical one but i think it's an important one you use the word several times in the book grace restoring nature and in the sort of scholastic tradition, they talk about grace perfecting nature. Uh, and I wonder, is there a difference there? Uh, or does Bavink mean the same thing? And I, and the reason I think that is probably important because I watch a lot of the, the, the sort of Christian nationalist movement right now in North America uh, is pulling on that principle that grace perfects nature and they're emphasizing it so heavily because it's holding up a big pillar of their system of thought. Uh, and they're very critical of Bavink in this respect. So I wonder if, so that's the question. When we say, when Bavink says, and Kuiper talk about grace restoring nature, 
state of Eden and all that, does he really mean what the scholastic tradition meant when they talked about grace perfecting nature? Yeah, Dill, thanks. I mean, let me just say one thing about your comment prior, and then I'll, I'll take that up. Um, yeah, I mean, of course, this is the task of preaching, right? Isn't it? That right. there, there is no preaching without contextualization. Um, and and if, if we don't update and progress our grammars in any way, or, or recognize that there's still so much to learn theologically, uh, then, you know, I, I don't really know why we continue to produce new systematic theologies and, right. and uh, carry on. I mean, we can just read what we've already done. Um, and, and of course, we're all intuitively aware of that. But I think sometimes in the debates and discourse, uh, well, you, you said, it. I mean, Jesus was a master at contextualization himself. He he uh, he goes to the woman at the well and speaks to her about the water of life standing next to the well. You know, the metaphors he chooses are so appropriate for the moment for communicating the gospel through the lens of embodied experience. Uh, he he says to Nicodemus, um, you know, you need to be born again to help him understand uh, that he needs to understand his passivity, that that it's he's got to become like a baby. Uh, he thinks he can do it himself, right? And so these are these are gospel contextualizations that go back to the very beginning and to our, our Lord himself. And um, I think these are, you know, uh, biblical backgrounds to the project of being Orthodox yet modern. Um, can I ask, uh, uh, how does the, the maybe the Christian nationalist movement um, or, or others understand or uh, interpret uh, grace perfecting nature? What do they take the term perfecting uh, to entail in just, in a, just a few minutes or so? Yeah, Joe. Yeah, so what's <laughs> going? Well, I think what's behind Dale's comment there is <laughs> there's, for instance, this this pretty famous book floating around out there right now. Uh, Stephen Wolf right. just published this case for Christian nationalism, and a lot of the way that he is, a lot of the grammar he's drawing upon to sort of to sort of argue, make his case, uh, is a a nature that sort of grace doesn't destroy nature. Uh, but but I, I think actually he might be drawing on grace doesn't restore nature, but perfects nature. It could be, in fact, that he's actually uh, I, I think he might frame himself over against um, um, neo-Calvinism. And maybe he's drawing on an older grammar, but he's somehow linking the case basically to a to kind of an older view, a more con reformed view of nature and grace. And it sort of gives the imprimatur of reformed kind of osmosis to sort of this nationalist rhetoric. If you can say that whatever the nationalist program is effectively uh, is an outgrowth of some notion of nature, uh, some something like that. Uh, I think I think that's sort of in the background. I'm not exactly sure how that goes on to a, a critique of Kuiper and Bovic though. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I asked the question just because I've heard uh, the perfection of nature and that phrase interpreted differently at different times. And um, I mean, let me tell you, let me say perhaps what, what Bobbing means by it um, and then and then see if that helps us. Um, for Bobbing, uh, and, I, and I write this in the book, um, the point is that the goal of new creation is precisely the same as the point of creation itself. Right. And, and this is the neo-Calvinist emphasis that eschatology precedes soteriology and even and right, even that right. eschatology is fundamental to the creation concept uh, that the point has always been Emmanuel, God with us, you know, divine condescension anyway, if you want to put it like that, that, that God was 
always creating humanity to dwell with us. Uh, and that the consummative hope of the garden was that we would have the beatific vision, that we would see God, that we would be with God. And so grace restores nature. It restores nature uh, and perfects it. If you want to mean by that, that it puts the pieces back together, that the moral corruption broke, and it takes it to its consummative uh, form, which was always the point, yet by different means. Uh, the, the first mean was obedience. The, the second is the second Adam, the first Adam and the second Adam, right? And so that's all That's all we mean by it, really. Um, but the emphasis is that the problem with creation, maybe a second thing that, and here's where the difference might arise, um, that Bavink and, and Kuiper both want to differentiate themselves from what they understand as a Roman Catholic interpretation uh, of of that same sequence, the creation sequence, where um, the perfection of nature was already a need prior to the problem of sin, is how Bavink understands Rome to 19th century Thomism, really Roman Catholic versions of Thomism. Uh, you guys are familiar with the Donum superadditum discussions and all that. Um, and so they, Bavink understands uh, that that grace perfects nature um, can be used to suggest that there is something wrong with nature uh, apart from ethical corruption. Mm. And um, what he wants to emphasize that is that the problem of creation is not ontology, it's ethics. Right. Uh, the, pr the problem of creation is not what we are. It's not being human. It's what we did and what we do. And so uh, grace restoring nature is is a moral uh, renovation. And now that, that leads us in other directions, too, that are they're probably different from the, the contrary position that you described. Um, one would be, and this is a difference between, uh, for instance, us and, and maybe the way David Van Drunen, who is himself a product of the neo-Calvinist movement, but he wants to articulate it differently. He wants to see um, uh, the eschatological moment as one of total dissolution of 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 creation and a, a complete new creation in every way. You know, he wants to see the the Petrine uh, formula of dissolving and, and wrapping up like a garment and burning as as a holistic, uh, lit very literal idea. And that informs what what he's going to say about how do we relate to culture in the present, right? Because right. Uh, there's nothing there's nothing to maintain. There's no germ or seed or anything or kernel. Uh, whereas Bobbing and Kuiper um, have real similarities there. They they believe that there's not a single artifact of human uh, construction that will remain in the new creation. Yet there is nevertheless much more continuity. That the the metaphors yeah. of the eschaton are uh ones that reference and this is the point i'm trying to make ones that reference fire by way of burning away the ethical impurity right that the problem is ethics not ontology um and so um th th that's the main idea and grace restores nature yeah and i wonder if one of the things that <clears throat> perhaps puts all these together of course what you're <clears throat> excuse me what you're describing reminds me, I guess, uh, Matson's dissertation on Bavink, right? I guess it's titled, Is It Restored to Our Destiny? Right, and it, and exactly. it puts that a little bit together, that, that destiny was always sort of written in creation, but were restored to creation precisely by being re restored to its end. Um, what I was going to ask about that, though, was um, 
put it, I guess bringing this back actually into cultural conversation, one of the things that I suspect is actually a tension here uh, is that when we define nature and the restoration of nature and the perfection of nature, it could be that we're drawing a concept of nature uh, overly much from sometimes we can draw a nature from what, what nature is either always or for the most part, you know, in kind of good Aristotelian fashion. And yet one of the things that seems to me that the gospel does, even though we don't abandon the kind of always or for the most part conception, what we do recognize in the ethical sphere is that we're not ethically normal. Uh, and so one of the things the gospel does say to marriage, for instance, is uh, what happened either always or for the most part in actual marriages before the coming of the Christ? Well, it might not have been what was most natural in some more fundamental theological sense of mm -hmm. that term nature. And that what, what does Christ, the coming of the Christ and the Holy Spirit sort of do to inject into the world of marriage? Well, it injects men and women that are faithful to one another in some unique way. And you see a literally, a, you know, historians can talk about a sexual revolution of the first and second centuries AD because the Holy Spirit and love comes into the world in some way that actually restores uh, marriage to what it was always supposed to have been and what is the human heart has always wanted it to be. And perhaps one of the things that comes up in a question like nationalism is whether or not in these complex modern circumstances, whether or not what it means to be have neighbors and to be a world and to be a world that moves toward one another and is related to one another. Perhaps there are ways in which the gospel forces us to imagine uh, and ima imagine what nature should be, uh, what it is and what it should be, rather than just this is the way it's always been and we can't deviate from that. And I suppose the way I'll, I'll generate that into a question is just to say, um, you know, you're 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 speaking. We're kind of bringing it back to this cultural sphere. You're bringing um, uh, up neo-Calvinism as a theological movement, uh, as opposed to most people's association with it. And yet, presumably, that large theolo that large theological association and all the particulars of that theology, nevertheless, cash out in some way in the world in those cultural and civil um, aspects that most people emphasize when they think about neo-Calvinism. And so I guess one thing I'd ask you guys is like, what, maybe one way of asking this is like, what, what, when you think now on the backside of a project like this about neo-Calvinism and it's kind of civil value, it's public, the it's, it's political theological value, if you will, mm -hmm. for Christians in 2023 in the modern world, how does that theology sort of smash into that, that world that we, we more typically associate, I guess you could say, with neo-Calvinism. Now, now that you're kind of on the other side of this project and you're, you're you know, you might think, okay, what, what is the implication of all of that for the modern 2023 world of politics and culture? That's a tough question, Joe. <laughs> it's a huge question. Um, I, maybe a, a couple of comments. The first one, I think, um, dovetails well with what Corey was saying and, you know, your national, your nationalism questions there. I think the the fact that the neo-Calvinists emphasis this idea of grace restoring nature means a couple of things. First is you have to have some kind of operative view of nature for that to work. If, if you know, there's that caricature of neo-Calvinism not liking natural order and natural law talk. I think that's a myth, and I think we can um, move away from that. But at the same time, because of the language of restores, uh, what you were commenting there, Joe, and what Corey was getting at too with with Brian Matson's work as well is that our perceptions of the natural order uh, 
needs the gospel needs um needs redemption mm -hmm. needs spiritual illumination so you know um the older natural law tradition makes a distinction between natural law and its relative application things like that and the neo-calvinists want to further our um humility with respect to perceptions of that natural law mm. by the language of common grace even such that you know perhaps one of the differences between neo-calvinism and nationalism and maybe this is why they're critical of the neo-calvinist movement is uh, the reticence of the earlier neo-calvinists even bobby and kuiper of saying that my perception of the natural order in this contemporary milieu is the natural order itself um, mm -hmm. Corey has a wonderful section on that with natural law and common grace in uh, one of the chapters, I think, uh, common grace in the gospel. And um, he really tries to illumine that that relationship between the two. So I think, um, you know, we want to be very slow in asserting that my natural state of affairs, my nation right now, rightly perceives the natural order and therefore everyone should live in accordance with my perception of the natural order um you know some people say well you know that's neo-calvinist capitulation to a kind right. of sub subjective mode of thinking or something you know um or a, a more chastened view of the role of reason and natural intuition with regard to natural law but but that's definitely a distinctive of the neo-calvinist project which leads me to a second comment which is um i think People don't really recognize this, but at least um, contemporary readers of neo-Calvinism, that the neo-Calvinist project is very much, I think, tethered with a healthy um, but chastened affirmation of democratic pluralism. Um, mm -hmm. I think there's there's patience with regard to other people, precisely because we recognize that Christians, too, have a need for the gospel to perceive the natural order, and also others might perceive the natural order better than you do by common mm. grace mm. um and so we ha in a in a in the political situation today i think kyber and bobbing would want you know a christian party and so on but again that christian party would want collaboration would want uh to foster a sense of patience and hopefulness with respect to uh conversing from the bottom up rather than institutionalizing christian um Christian projects or something like or Christian law or Christian obligations um, because mm -hmm. this is not the time of the eschaton this is the time of common grace this is not the right mm -hmm. time for that this is uh, in the redemptive historical order this is still the period of God's common grace of patience um, and so third I think um, a healthy sense of resisting polarization and also um, uh, again this an optimism for persuasion and collaboration with the other if that makes sense mm -hmm. uh go, dale I, I think you wanted to say something i just wanted to ask a question on that um because i think the conversation brad little john has been writing about this he's the president of the davenant institute and our our friends we've been thinking about this and talking about what you're saying uh a lot uh recently because mm -hmm. we have to <laughs> um I, so right if Bavink would say let's have a christian party um but let's not institutionalize our christian you said earlier we don't want a christian hegemony would Bavink be and kuiper maybe would they be for privileging christian institutions so like on a real practical level would it be like we're going to give tax breaks to christian 501c3s but we're not going to give it to the mormons or the or the muslims or or the jews or something 
Corey's about to answer something profound, I'm sure. But one one caveat before Corey gives his profound answer is um, there is a section in Bobbins Reform Dogmatics where it says something about we got to, you know, institutionalize Sabbath rest and against heresy and so on. But then right after that, he says, but that really does depend on the context. It depends on whether the people themselves want it. So again, it's uh, neo-Calvinism has always been a grassroots movement, which is reflective of the people. And so if there are people in your nation that are not right. Christian, then they need to be served as well. They need to have the full freedom to pursue their worldviews in their own way. This is their, the Kuyperian system of polarization. Corey? Yeah, I was just going to say that the determination of the possibility of Christian commonwealth, which is real, according to neo-Calvinism, and was sought after by Kuyper and Bavink, is not... Uh, never because the state has the ability to determine theological logic in any way and only because of really ministry at the end of the day. Um, and so for for them, it, it, it's all about the movement, as Gray just put it, from the bottom up, uh, from the organic church doing its work and doing its job and mm. getting out there. And so um, the question is not ever, you know, are we winning? Um, are we Are we getting our goals in terms of our institutions, but um, more of are, are we staying faithful to the, to the gospel ministry? And uh, that's a ministry of, uh, you know, word and witness, word and mercy. Uh, it's ultimately a ministry of persuasion. Uh, the hope and the goal is that it produces a commonwealth. It produces a Christian party that, that rises to power, but that Christian party um, for, for Kuiper as, as he did rise to, to the prime minister seat uh, was never to privilege uh, Christianity explicitly um, in any obvious way. I mean, I mean, part of what did happen was that uh, the the Christian party that you speak of wanted to make sure and petition uh, the government that of the Netherlands that um, Christian schools uh, received government funding, and so did Muslim schools, and so did Buddhist schools, and so. This is commonly known as the the pillarization um, movement, or, or uh, the result of, of that idea. Now, whether that that was wise or not, in every way, the de- there's lots of detail. There's lots of policy sure. at play, and all that. The, the conceptual apparatus underneath is that um, is that the state, as an institution, does not have the capability to determine theology or apply it. Um, it is it is merely the arm of justice, um, and, and so that was that was Kuiper and Bobbing's uh, con- conviction. I mean, another maybe thing to say is that at the heart of it, <clears throat> the idea. I mean, this is what neo Calvinism means very literally for them. Uh, neo Calvinism for Kuiper and Bobbing is the idea that God matters for all of life because yeah. all of life is is lived in the presence of God. I mean, that, that's really the heartbeat of what neo-Calvinism means. Mm-hmm. Uh, they understood yeah. Calvinism to mean that uh, Christianity has holistic implications for all of life. And the the additional idea for them is that precisely because of the presence of God. Um, and so all of us live quorum Deo. Uh, so, you know, when we have these discussions, I know that that this is where things can get into lots of debate, this this field of public theology and how to apply um these ideas to to the workspace, for example, or the state, or wherever it may be. Right. Or the, but you know, I find that even in these conversations where people disagree, we all we all pretty much agree that God has to matter for all of life. And um, 
that faith has to matter for the workplace and faith has to matter for the family life and for our kids' education and uh, and for the state in some sense, right? It's just a matter of the details. Um, and so uh, if nothing else in the Reformed tradition, we all have to, to say, um, because we all stand before the presence of God, God matters for everything we do. Um, so, yeah. I mean, one of the one of the places to hang your hat from Scripture that Bavink wanted to hang his hat was in First Timothy, that godliness is profitable for all things, valuable in every way for whatever you're doing, uh, right? And so, um, I mean, th- that that is neo Calvinist public theology in brief, I'd say. And of course, there's there's many different applications, and and there's plenty of uh, people who have applied that down the neo Calvinist stream and the various tributaries that have developed where gray and i would both find it very unhelpful yeah um, uh, but, but they are still working maybe with the basic idea yeah it's such a it's interesting though there's 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 some living contributions nevertheless and maybe this is a good way to kind of uh, bring us in sort of tour for a landing here um uh i my church, I, I, I attend a PCA church in, in the Dallas area in Texas, and uh, 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 we have a, a new pastor, a fairly young young guy, really wonderful guy about uh, in his mid-30s, a little younger than me. Uh, but he's, you know, he's inherited this church with a, a good, good number of members and such, uh, and he's really trying to put together a philosophy of ministry, and he's trying to help have a lot of people in the church come together and and help, you know, kind of hive mind think through a philosophy of ministry. And one of the things he's drawing from is this organic motif. Uh, uh, how, when we're thinking through what does it mean to be a church in Dallas in 2023, uh, what does that mean relative to the church as an institution? But in, in, in what other ways are we an organic church? Uh, in what ways does that have to do with, um, you know, uh, parish groups, for instance, or the boundaries of a parish group? exactly the same things as the boundaries of the institutional church who you can give the sacrament to is a little bit different than the answer to the question of who you can read the bible and pray with you know for instance and so there's all these sorts of interesting kind of rich and especially in a world where christianity is kind of this odd very very diversified organism at a in a public way uh, these are actually, I think, very rich resources to draw upon to think through actually what turn out to be very complicated sociological questions for, for mm. ordinary Christians right now and how to think about how to relate to other institutions or whatever. But maybe a way of kind of bringing that in for a landing is to ask you guys, what a, you know, you're on the other side of this project. This book's about to get published. We're all real, I, I'm very excited. I think this is going to be a really rich resource for the church. This is a really fantastic really well done and well put together text what um maybe as you're reflecting on the backside what was the maybe the most surprising thing i i'd be uh, curious to hear from you what was the most surprising thing for you to discover in kuiper and bovink that i don't know uh, uh moved you the most or something like that as you're as you're trying to put together this volume and and what do you think is kind of like uh, maybe a kind of co-question for that is what do you think future work you know, you, this is a seminal text in a lot of ways. Uh, I think this is going to be an important text. What what comes on the other side of this text? What's future work to be done uh, in these topics that you think? I think that's a, a good way of synthesizing this. That's a great question, Joe. I think um, one initial response about what was most surprising to me was how many times Kuiper and Boving themselves emphasized that it is in the doctrine of scripture that they were most innovative. 
Um, mm. um, for some reason, they keep coming back to that theme in numerous texts where Bavink would say um, the arrival or the, the, the renaissance of Calvinism or the new form of Calvinism has presented the doctrine of scripture in the most acute form. That's what he says in one line. Um, mm. Kuiper as well devoted a lot of pages on the doctrine of scripture inspiration. And so I think that was what was most surprising for me. And in terms of future work, and I think, by the way, that's George Hunsinger also says that's the one area that we got to hone in on when he talked about um, the difference between the neo-Calvinist tradition from someone like Carl F. F. H. Henry on the one side and the post-liberal tradition of Hans Frey on the other side. The neo-Calvinist mm-hmm. tradition, he actually says, is a third way. Um, so the third way discourse much precedes the current Twitter blogosphere. The Twitter way is the first way. Is that what you're going to say? <laughs> it's the, the third way is the first way, Corey. Um, all right. Um, uh, second thing, I think for for more future work, you know, um, well, hopefully the handbook uh, of the TNT Clark handbook to neo Calvinism establishes that future work because it just shows how the various tributaries form from this lake or river of neo Calvinism from Kuiper and Bobbing. So you know, there's there needs to be more work on. There needs to be a reevaluation, honestly, of. Burkhauer, of Klaus Skilder, of mm. um, um, Herman Doeviert, of Alvin Plantinga, you know, in light of the recognizance of the actual over corpus of Kuiper and Waving that we have in our hands here today. I think the Anglophone world is honestly still very much under-resourced. And when you read Burkhauer and all these other second, third generation sort of figures, so much of their work, in- incredibly enough, as we're reading them again now, is just critical commentary on Kuiper and Boving. And oftentimes right. those works were not translated. So now we actually have access to it. So there is a volume out there about, about all this. And the handbook, I think, is a starting point for that sort of uh, evaluative work. Hmm. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think of uh, something surprising. I mean, one of the things that jumps out at me is, or jumped out at me is, you know, we, we focused the book largely on Kuiper and Boving because we wanted to focus on the first generation and recover, you know, the sources, the most original sources. But I mean, another author that we dip into from time to time in the book is J.H. Bavink. And I think um, J.H. Bavink has probably been the most surprising and the most delightful way uh, resource for us over the last couple of years. Um, uh J.H., um, well, I'll say this. One of the things that maybe Herman and uh, Abraham uh, don't, that is Kuiper, um, don't do uh, don't do maximally is the type of redemptive historical exegesis that would develop in the neo-Calvinist tradition just after them. You see it in seed form, especially in Kuiper, uh, especially in his work on Adam and Christ and the redemptive fulfillment of humanity through the the kind of development of the, of the concept of the first and second Adam. But um, but it's not until J.H. Bavink and, of course, Voss uh, simultaneously <laughs> that you get this blossoming of redemptive historical hermeneutics. And redemptive historical hermeneutics, of course, is not uh, created by neo-Calvinism. Obviously, it's it's a it's a two thousand year old endeavor. Um, but but there is significant contribution to it from the neo-Calvinist tradition, and you see it in seed form in Kuiper and Bavink. But I, I I look for it more, I think, when I 
over the years of reading them. But J.H. Bavink is where it really begins to blossom in terms of guys who stayed in the Netherlands. Of course, Voss came to the States and, and developed it there. Um, so that that's that's just something to mention. I think that there's a ton of work to do uh, in J.H. Bavink. I think that he is going to be the mm. the delight of many readers over the next decade. And, um, you know, speaking of Lewis, I mean, talk about if, if there's a connection between the Dutch and Lewis, it's, it's J.H. Bavink, I think. Uh, he is the I've said called him the Lewis of the uh, of the neo Calvinists. I think mm. he reads like Lewis. I think he's insightful like Lewis. So, um, and we've got a couple guys. One guy in particular doing a PhD on JH Bob Inc. right now at, at Edinburgh, uh, Jack Gamble Smith. Um, mm. uh, the other the other uh, what were we talking about? Um, books. Oh yes, future projects. Well, yeah, as Gray mentioned, so we're we're just for clarification, um, the TNT Clark. The handbook that Gray was referring to is a is a different book. Not, yeah, not, I was going to ask that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure, So sure. Um, uh, we are about to submit the TNT Clark handbook on neo Calvinism, which is a forty author, forty chapter um, handbook, mm-hmm. uh, scholarly oh, handbook. Okay. Um, edited yeah. by you two. Edited by us, yes, okay. and okay. It, it spans uh, you know historical figures, theological loci, legacy mm-hmm. questions. Uh, relationship to patristic theology, medieval theology, all those sorts of things. Um, so there'll be a lot more to dig into with that. And and we have authors from six different continents, which represents, uh, you know, the, the international movement that this has been uh, mm. from from names like Nicholas Wolterstorff to, to Tim Keller to Rich Mal and many others. So, um, yeah, so th- that that'll be out sometime, Lord willing, in 24 but we're nearly done with that. I mean, I mean, I think one of the things that I think will happen with this revival of neo-Calvinist primary texts is the constructive recovery of neo-Calvinism's dogmatic tradition. So we we really have yet to get guys that are trying to do original work that's not merely historical theology. Um, Gray and I have done a little bit, but uh, you know we. As Harding said at the beginning of our, our new book uh, with Lexham, uh, neo-Calvinism has not developed in the last century as dogmatics. Um, right. And it's, it's exa- exactly that idea of development is, is, um, is, is uh, are, are we are we writing from this tradition, but not but not as mere historians We're we're doing theology, we're constructing, <laughs> we're carrying on exactly what they tried to teach, which is orthodox yet modern conservative conserve and progress for the sake of the church. Um, and so I, I just think that there's going to be a, a blossom of, of constructive texts um, and mm. works popular and academic and, and the biblical theology movement is, isn't a testament to that to some degree, but, um, mm, but, right. but also in, in more acutely in the dogmatic sphere. So, so if, if any of the contributors of that handbook, a couple of outstanding chapters that have not yet been submitted uh if you're listening to this we're just waiting on y'all so <laughs> two, two or three chapters left no pressure no pressure. pressure yeah two or three <laughs> yes. chapters left you all know yes. who you are so yes. Yes. <laughs> very good well uh uh cory uh gray thank you brothers thank you for your hard work thank you, you guys much. are just really? machines you're putting yes. out such good resources and i'm uh, Joe and I are interested. We've been following you for a long time and what Eglinton is doing and just the whole group of uh, Bavink Dutch theology brothers. So keep it up. Um, 
we'll look forward to the handbook uh and perhaps when it comes out we'll grab a few of the guys and we'll have a big discussion and uh that will be uh 2024 so we'll get our dose of Corey and gray next year god willing unless we all die in which case <laughs> we'll see you in the restored eden <laughs> all right so uh, Neo-Calvinism, a theological introduction by Lexham Press uh, coming out very soon. Everyone pick up a copy um, and email all your questions to, uh, to Dr. Gray Sutanto because he doesn't have anything better to do. Um, but thank you, gentlemen. Appreciate your time. Thanks thank for coming on. Thank you, guys. We're grateful. Thank you. Thank you so much. All right, guys. We'll see you next time.